millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Anoush and I'm joined by my colleagues Stephen, Alva and Patrick to discuss could the government have done anything differently and have they put us in a bad situation? When will lockdown be over? And you ask us, should journalists ask different questions at the press conferences? So this weekend saw the publication of several articles criticising the government's decisions yeah, in kind of the February-March period, the period in which we first had a radically different approach, well, significantly different approach to fighting the novel coronavirus than the one that we ended up with in late March. One in the Sunday Times, one on the uh, New States and website by Dominic Minghella, one in the Financial Times, with the real focus basically being about, you know, the speed of, A, stepping up British procurement efforts for things like protective equipment, masks and tests, and two, on the approach to, you know, the kind of the decision-making process that led to sort of phase one of no lockdown, wash your hands, that obviously then was reversed when it became clear that the NHS could not maintain capacity. I keep thinking about this thing, you know, Patrick, you said a couple of weeks ago about, you know, MPs feeling that journalists were trying to cover the, the crisis and the inquiry at the same time. And what did you make of of these various sort of stories? Yeah, well, I did have a little bit of sympathy for that criticism or that critique rather of the way journalists approach the press conferences and, and coverage more broadly. But yeah, I think of course it's a of course it's a legitimate criticism. And as the conversation turns to exit strategies, which clearly there is an appetite within cabinet within the parliamentary conservative party if you look at the front page of the sundays and indeed this morning's times as well there are loads of briefings from danny street from the cabinet from tory grandees talking about the need for an exit strategy and you can't really discuss the merits or lack thereof of opening garden centers by next month and bringing kids back to school by june or whatever without considering how effective is the the current state of affairs. How do we get here? Why did we get here? Were the decision-making processes and the decisions we took to get here, you know, what were the costs and benefits of those? Obviously, there are a hell of a lot of costs, as we've seen. And uh, yeah, you can't really consider any of those questions without taking a, a long, hard look at how we got here. But I suppose the question 
is if you're assuming that the look has to be long and hard, I know you think that there are dimensions of the Sunday Times reporting or, you know, the, the suggestion that Boris Johnson is an absentee landlord or was an absentee landlord, of course, before his, um, before he himself was ill and now he's obviously recuperating in checkers. But yeah, broadly, I think it's, it's, of, it's of course fair and necessary to ask, the, ask those questions, even if the result is that ministers at the press conference are answering questions about how much PPE is going to, you know, care homes in Leicestershire, as well as saying, well, this is why we're in this situation now. I think it's perfectly fair, even if it is not how the government would like to be dealing with this. And in a way, lots of these reports, some of the things that make the biggest headlines and seem to be the top line of these reports, like in the Sunday Times story over the weekend, you know, the main line was that Boris Johnson had skipped the first five COBRA meetings and there was sort of this suggestion running through the piece that his lack of leadership was central to the failings that followed. But actually, I think that stuff is maybe more about the sort of ins and outs of number 10 personnel drama that that kind of perspective journalists use to cover lots of crises like Brexit, for example, when actually that's sort of the weakest part. I think the strongest part is sort of the systemic stuff. Like there's a lot of mentions of austerity in that same piece. And really, you know, when you look at it like like that from that perspective, it does suggest you know, a big, almost not just policy based, but big philosophical failing of what a state is for, and how resilient your state should be. And I think that stuff, the reporting on on that kind of thing. So the emergency stocks of PPE were run down and dwindling because of the lack of lack of money for sort of extra slack, if you like, in the NHS. I think that's much stronger than where was Boris Johnson on X date? Oh, he was in his country house, even though that's the stuff that kind of makes the headlines. So I think there is a lot of merit in the sort of prism with which these stories are, are looking at, at the government's sort of recent failings. But I do also think there's a lot of distraction as well, which which can be quite confusing and I imagine can be sort of riling up the public in a way that's not particularly helpful. I guess the, the thing is it gets eyeballs on yeah. a story that might otherwise be. Because, you know, PPE shortages or, you know, exclusive stocks of PPE depleted in months before pandemic is sort of like what? Guardian, page 14, Financial Times, page 8. It's not the sort of thing, okay, yeah, people would get people would share it on Twitter, but... As part of a, a longer tale of institutional neglect and personal failings on Boris Johnson's part, that story's banging is inevitable. Whereas yeah. the actual stories often often struggle to capture the imagination. Suppose this is the 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 perennial question facing all journalists: is that it's easy to have a narrative with people in it. Still, yeah, of course. Still, more, still more so, you know. As someone who who elicits very strong feelings in people at a time when emotions are already running high. Yeah, so I guess the thing I think is interesting, and I noticed it because, you know, Gavin Barwell, who obviously is a Conservative peer, but he's usually one of the first people to criticise Boris Johnson, tweeted this weekend, you know, basically saying, look, the, the kind of inquiry can wait until after the crisis. And what I think is fascinating about it as a, as a frame is what I think it implicitly takes for granted is the idea that everything that has gone wrong can be explained in one of two ways, both of which you can't fix during a crisis, right? The first is a decade of public spending cuts, which particularly for the first half were very effectively targeted politically on stuff people wouldn't notice. And of course, 
your ability to respond to a black swan event is obviously going to be you know the kind of first thing to the wall if your political project is let's have spending cuts but let's also make sure middle england doesn't notice right and there's the kind of ministerial incompetence as an explanation which again you can't really fix because these are the ministers you've got right like ultimately if if the problem is is their incompetence then that problem unfortunately has 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 further to run and so i think the thing is right is the the argument about yeah like to cover the now rather than the then only works if you believe that it is one of those two problems and crucially only works if you believe it's solely one of those two problems or indeed i guess like problem two and a half which is something and obviously i'm very sympathetic to because i have written repeatedly in the past that i think that this particular act is a bit of a problem do you think that you know ultimately the other thing that could be causing some of these delays and it's difficult to fix mid-pandemic is the health and social care act which created this thing called public health england and this separate entity in the form of nhs england which does not really run in the way the nhs did prior to 2010 and in many ways the only remaining example of an nhs running broadly in the way that it ran under new labor is now the nhs in scotland because the nhs in wales for a variety of political reasons had a a kind of sort of deliberate project of not emulating uh, many of the things that the nhs did in england that, that, of course, is something you can't fix, right? I'm intellectually very sympathetic to it. This is generally not a hindsight being 2020. It's something that Matt Hancock was very aware of when he became health secretary. He was like, I pull levers and nothing happens. There was a lot of pressure from his advisors to include measures to unpick and, and change the Self-Tailor Act in the NHS bill. Obviously, in many ways, that's also a dodged catastrophe because although I think then public health England and this structure is being shown not to work. Can you imagine the one thing that would be even worse would be trying to fix this structure mid-pandemic, right? So all of those things can't be solved till after crisis, right? But what if one of the problems, and I think one of the things leaping out to me reading that story and indeed many others, right, is at the point at which the UK was taking a particular approach and put it in a minority of countries overseas, in which the evidence was based slightly on information about the novel coronavirus that was imperfect and slightly on a kind of institutional muscle memory of a, of, a, of a new virulent influenza strain. The evidence that the Chinese government was behaving in a way that indicated it was more transmissible than we thought was hugely apparent. You had Ai Weiwei saying, saying exactly that in London. And I think the interesting structural question I have is where was the sort of security state foreign office apparatus in these debates because if the question is actually they just didn't assert themselves or they weren't present in key meetings as you move to how do you get out of lockdown how do you respond how do you do xyz right those are all things that can be fixed mid-flight as it were and that's what i think the debate this kind of idea that you can only do one of them at the end doesn't doesn't quite work. Ditto, right? I don't know if anyone saw Jenny Harris yesterday going, we were an international exemplar of prepared, preparedness. And this kind of narrative that, oh, yeah, she's been told to say that or she's a tourist. Well, maybe she's just wrong. And again, actually, if the consensus in government isn't they think that some of their current medical advice is not, scientific advice is, is not, yeah, is being presented as too certain when there are a variety of opinions, if they think there is an issue because SAGE shouldn't ever really be speaking with one voice, right? That That's not really how scientific advice works other than in like deeply basic things like 
if you jump out of a plane without a parachute, you'll die. Those are all things that they could fix mid, mid-crisis. And I think that to me feels like the really important distinction that people on both sides of that argument are failing to draw. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. And now's the time for a section we like to call You Ask, Ask Us. And this question is from Adam Henwood. He says, are the journalists really doing a bad job of asking the right questions of the government? Or is it just really easy for the government to avoid answering the difficult questions? Patrick, you actually ask a question. So uh, why don't you let us know <laughs> from your perspective? Did you ask the right question? <laughs> don't, don't, yeah, it's a good one as well. Don't let me forget it. Well, you know, <laughs> well, I couldn't possibly... Here, here I am having asked one question at the Downing Street press conference. That the the old the old the old master um, repeating his wisdom for the edification <laughs> of his colleagues. We'll get you to relive it every week on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, I relive it every every time I close my eyes to go to bed. Um, I see Dominic Robb staring glassily at me, hearing him asking me if I want to come back on any of that. Patrick, oh, dreamy. The problem is, I think so many, so many of the questions are. There's that brilliant Harry and Paul sketch about Question Time, where they parody the sort of the archetypal Question Time answers, question askers rather, and and indeed the answers. But it's the, it's the questioners that the the humour uh, is derived from. And one of them is um, like a poor White House playing elderly Liverpoolian woman who just says. Wouldn't it be better if the government just admitted that they got it wrong? And that the problem is so many of the questions at the press conference are just like that, which is, won't you admit that you've been complete idiots rather than can you tell us how many X or this point of policy are you going to do Y, yes or no? And most of the time where actual news comes out of the press conferences, like there was a chap from the New Statesman who asked how many care homes the novel coronavirus had infected uh, the other week. And for instance, whoever asked at the press conference yesterday whether teaching was going to happen in the summer holidays, which is a yes-no question that Gavin Williamson answered in the negative, then obviously we are illuminated. But sort of if you're just saying like, won't you? And this is where the, the criticism of trying to do the inquiry, trying to get ministers to adjudicate on, make sort of value judgments on their own response rather than saying, okay, Patrick Valance, Gavin Williamson, Robert Jemrick, Chris Whitty, you know, you're all around the table with this information. Tell us what you know or tell us what, in the case of the scientific advisors, tell us what the government should do or might do or with ministers, tell us what you are going to do. Yields actual information rather than aren't you awful? To which the answer is, of course, we're really trying. 
Yeah. Those kind of questions do serve a purpose to kind of, you know, expose ministers in terms of their mealy mouthed answers or repeating what they've already said, etc. But I don't think that's as obvious to the public. And these these press conferences are ultimately for the public, aren't they? That, that the idea is for some transparency, some communication. And so although it's, you know, between journalists, it's like, oh, well, look, look how he's trying to avoid the question. That's not necessarily as obvious to, to the audience. And that means that it is better, like you say, to ask questions which you don't know the answer to. Yeah. I remember that's something that I was always told, you know, in interviews, don't try and be clever and ask a question that you already know the answer to, but you want to try and look like you're catching them out. Just ask something that you want to know the answer to. And, you know, likelihood is in a story like this, that is going to be uncomfortable for them. And they're going to reveal something, like you said, that, that will make some news. Yeah, because I, I remember when I said how many cows is it in, Chris Whitty just sort of said like, 13.5% and it's been in 92 in the past 24 hours, which he just sort of reeled off because it quite dispassionately because it's just sort of figures off a spreadsheet mm-hmm, when actually mm-hmm. that was at that point, especially, yeah, the care home narrative was just about, was just sort of taking off at that point. Mm. Whereas it won't be as exciting as say Dominic Raab sort of tugging his collar. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it is actually the questions whose answers sound boring are often the most important. Yeah, I think it's it's odd because so I think there are essentially I think there are two reasons why the press conferences are annoying quite so many people. Right? I think any like journalistic discussion does have to start with a honest account of the fact that all of like every indication talking to anyone or rather yelling to anyone over the two minute meter thing will be if you're recognised in the street as a journalist, if you look at the polls, if you look at Twitter, if you look at Facebook, right? There is clear and growing discontent with how we are covering this crisis. And I think one of the slight problems is that there's a conflict in that press conference in like, is this a moment to ask a sort of news-based policy question, like Paul Ward's very good one about domestic violence, or is this about the need for the broadcasters to have a picture, yeah, or something new, right? Like, because I think part of the problem is, is that and then of course there is like a problem of like you know the the, the joy I mean this is I was I realize this is a lie I was about to say the joy then like you had at the press conferences you didn't have like a news desk breathing down your neck and then I remembered the like however many WhatsApp messages I sent you that morning but I think the difference is right is that it's much easier to ask a concrete policy question if the thing that your corporate interest is in is having asked a serious policy question. And this is, I guess, where I come back to inevitably when we talk about the media, Stephen complains about the BBC. This is, I think, where there is a serious critique of whether or not the BBC is adequately using the fact that because thankfully it has a payment model that means it shouldn't have to worry about like market chasing. Is the BBC using its questions sufficiently to ask dull policy-based questions? I, given that there was a press conference in which someone from the BBC asked if they could guarantee there would not be a recession, a question to which the answer is obviously, no, are you daft? It's not clear to me that they are using their role as a market leader that is why they are can be so valuable to us as a systemic as a systemically important institution. I think it also just kind of comes back to that fundamental thing that we've all been saying for weeks, that this shouldn't really be the remit of political journalists or like at least it shouldn't be primarily the job of political journalists and that's like Downing Street's fault that they're the ones asking the questions but I just I think you can tell that it doesn't play to a lot of political journalists skill sets to 
ask policy-led questions because in political journalism in general, there's sort of the human drama and the policy decisions running alongside each other. And some people are much better at doing the former than the latter. And it doesn't perfectly fit within the remit of science journalism either because it spans sort of all of policy making and like all of public life at the moment. But I just think that political journalists would be much better placed to ask the kinds of questions that Patrick was talking about where you need a specific answer and you're asking the kinds of questions that you don't already know the answers to rather than simply trying to get an admission or an apology for bad wording or a mistake weeks ago rather than clarity about the position moving forward. So there was a lot of coverage over the weekend sort of looking back at the government's response and how it could have done things differently. But there's also the big question of of the immediate future and when we're actually going to be in a different scenario out of the lockdown or in a mildly less strict lockdown. And of course, we don't know when that's going to be. And we've had the extension for another three weeks and then there'll be another review. So what do you guys think? I mean, we made predictions last week, but how do you think that the future is looking at the moment? Uh, bleak in short I can't help but feel that if there is a there is going to be a public inquiry I think a, one of its strands will be on the the front pages and and and, and the calls from Tory grandees etc to get out sooner rather than later which I'm not an epidemiologist but it just seems to to rush out of this as there is a clear appetite to do so on the Tory benches or at least sections of it does seem to be a very risk. I mean, there is no, I guess the entire point of this is that there is no pain-free or risk-free way out. But I think that what's consistent about any discussion of an exit strategy is that this is going to continue in some form for a very long time. Things aren't going back to normal. There's no point asking when do things go back to the pre-lockdown normal because nobody knows and it's not immediately clear whether they can. So... Yeah, it's my pessimistic reflection on where we're going. This is actually one of the areas where I think that pieces like that Sunday Times article over the weekend talking about the government's response at the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak actually has lots of lessons to teach about this stage. Like that question of whether we should be looking back when we have further forward to go. I think that There are some things in that Sunday Times article and in that broader conversation that show what we need to clarify for the end strategy. And I think primarily it's sort of differentiating between the government and ministerial views and the scientific advice that they are being given by their scientific advisors and then the consensus or the views within the scientific community at large. Because I actually thought that was quite muddled in the Sunday Times piece like you have to read it several times to get a sense of what advice was given was being given to them specifically and what was sort of out there in the ether of the wider scientific community and I think probably looking forward that needs to be much clearer like there are people within government there are the doves and the hawks who have different approaches to how quickly we should be out of lockdown how much we should be prioritizing the economy and so on then there are like the people in their circle who will be giving their own advice. And then there's the question of how much they take on 
the wider consensus within within the scientific community. I think that at every stage of journalism and reporting, that needs to be much clearer so that we're not in a situation again where it's not clear whether government didn't take their advisor's advice or the advice was wrong or whether the wider scientific community was wrong. Yeah, and I think it's it's hindered this whole debate by this sort of false binary between prioritizing the nation's health over prioritizing the economy because as we've seen, you know, just through common sense but also the Marmot review which we discussed when it came out fairly recently and um, various other studies that you can't separate health from the economy, you know, when the economy is doing badly or it's being dealt with badly by by the government then it affects people's health. And I'm actually working on a piece at the moment for the New Statesman about the impact of all of this on the care for non-coronavirus patients and people who aren't coming forward with symptoms for other illnesses. And doctors are, some of them are more worried about that than the than the impact of the virus, you know, directly itself on people's health. So I know that's a really tr- tricky sort of point that muddies the water and it doesn't really help anyone in, t- in terms of deciding what we prioritise. But you know, these two things are inextricably linked and it is the, it is the function mm. of the state to try and find the right balance between them. But I mm. do think it's often written up as this kind of binary when it shouldn't be kind of the Donald Trump, let's make sure that the cure isn't deadlier than, than the disease type thing, whereas actually the two things are linked. Yeah, because I think the thing I find kind of strange about the, the binariness of the debate, right, and these are reflections that are very, very rooted in my very specific place, right, in the the thing I'm keenly aware I can't do because it's I pass it almost every day whenever I have to, you know, go to the shops or if I'm going on my state sanctioned sanctioned exercise, et cetera, et cetera. The restaurant at the end of the road that I really like and I go to quite a lot, but obviously I can't at the moment. Now there are two reasons why I'm not going to that restaurant. The first, of course, is the government has closed it. But before the government had closed it, I wasn't going to it either because I was concerned that if I went I would die. Like, and that's the slightly strange thing about the whole is the cure worse than the disease, right? This idea that if Donald Trump did get his way and went, oh, yeah, we're going to reopen the economy, then like a bunch of New Yorkers would go, yep, I hidden, I hidden conditions outside are going <laughs> just brilliant. The other thing, of course, though, that I am really very exposed to, and I'm sure is actually true for, for all of you, really, is that living on, yes, a very small estate, but living on an estate, you can't, you can't not be aware of the various teenagers who are stuck indoors at like a a terrible moment in their own personal and educational development for that to be happening. The younger children who usually would be spending most of their time outside who are, you know, kind of like, and although obviously it's inspiring in a way that as a community, like the dog walkers have all essentially decided to vacate that green space. And I've said, and we've all decided to vacate that green space so that the children can use it for their time out, their one time out in the thing. It's still not a healthy way for them to be. And so I guess I'm instinctively primed to be very keenly aware of the social justice implications of of the lockdown continuing. But equally, it's very clear that the -the off-the-shelf thing that works, which allows you to exit lockdown, is a huge level of searching, surveillance, and protective equipment. We don't have the huge level of protective equipment or testing infrastructure and we do not yet have well it's not even clear if the government wants to do any of those things and I kind of think in terms of like questions we I would like more people to be asking it's like the government's five tests as written cannot ever be met be met other than by a vaccine which may not happen is that deliberate because 
broadly the cabinet is split and Boris Johnson will have to adjudicate one way or another. I suspect that is the case. Or is it then it is honestly the, the vision of the government that we will wait for a vaccine and that is plan A because there are many problems with that as plan A. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, Stephen Bush, Alva Ray and Patrick Maguire. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out Why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community... Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts.